saying that says, every ending is a new beginning. And we have our last Sunday of the year, next Sunday is the first Sunday of the next year. But we have lots of endings in this life, don't we? For all you that are here, that uh, some of the older children that still might be here, there's the end of school at Christmas that you all look forward to, right? Or for you that are older, it might be the end that are studying, it might be the end of exams that you all look forward to. Those are the endings that are good. Glad when they're over. But most endings, lots of endings, are sad endings. And even with school, it's kind of funny that as much as we want school to end, when you get to grade 12, and especially at, uh, at grad, there's a sense of sadness that it's over. Some of those people that you spent years and years growing up with, you'll, you'll never see again, or at least you'll never be together in that same sort of way again. Or when you move away from somewhere, there's always a sense of sadness and, and nostalgia. Because you're leaving memories and, and, and relationships that are, that are deep and familiar. Or when you leave a job or, or when you retire, sometimes it can be hard to leave that routine and to leave those colleagues. Well, I, I'm the kind of guy that has a personality that feels those sort of things. I, I don't like change and I get nostalgic when things that were familiar and comfortable have to come to an end. But for those of you that can move on quicker, and I understand there's those of you that do that better than I do, you understand that every ending means a new beginning. Something is done, but it means something new is starting. You get excited about that. The end of high school means you get to move on to a new phase. You begin to move toward a career. Some, sometimes you move right into that career, or sometimes you start studying towards that. When you move into a different neighborhood or city, you get to meet new people. You get to start new relationships. When you leave one job, all it means is that there's a new opportunity. Or when you retire from a job, you have a a newfound freedom to do other stuff. Of course, there's one final ending in life, and that's life itself. But for those of us that are, are Christians, even that ending means a new beginning. The end of life on earth means eternal life in heaven. For those that stay behind, it's always sad. But for those who die, we can echo the words of Paul, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or like Paul also says in Philippians, he says, To die is gain. To depart is to be with Christ. And then he says, and that is much better. Every ending is a new beginning. Well, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because today is December 26th, and for lots of people, December 26th and the end of Christmas is tough. It means Christmas is over. The anticipation is over. The, the presents are open. The trees and, and the lights and, and the decorations will all soon start to come down. The carols will gradually stop playing. I'm so glad we still sang carols today, but gradually they, they kind of stop. The food has been consumed. All we're left, is, all we're left with is crumpled up wrapping paper, uh, dried up trees, uh, turkey salad sandwiches, right? <laughs> and we're left with the realization that we all need to get on a diet, or at least for me. The end of Christmas can be a sad time for people. All the mental health experts tell us that when Christmas and the holidays are over, that's when people start getting sick. They're most susceptible to sickness or even depression. 
But I want to tell you this morning that the fact that Christmas is over should be a good thing. There's no reason to get down. In fact, there's every reason to be excited. When we celebrate Christmas, after all, we celebrate a birth. We celebrate the beginning of something. We celebrate the birth of a Savior. And his life and his impact is just getting started. So yes, Christmas is over. But the end of Christmas signals a new beginning. So on this day after Christmas, we're going to have a new beginning too. And we're going to start today a new series on the life of Jesus. We're start a series on the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is an interesting book. It's one of the four Gospels, as you all know. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In terms of Christmas... We get the Christmas story, the story that we're all familiar with, we get that from Matthew and from Luke. That's where we get all the details of the birth of Jesus. But Mark skips all that. Mark starts with the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Listen again to that very first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, now that Christmas is over... Let's all together think of this as a new beginning. The end of Christmas means the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so even though Christmas is over, that's no reason to get down. The fact that Christmas is over means we can move on to the reason that he was conceived by the, by the Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary in that manger in Bethlehem. And so let's find out why we so celebrate that, that birth as believers. That's what the Gospel of Mark is going to help us do. It's going, to, it's going to help us know why Jesus came, and it's going to challenge us with the question about how we respond to the fact that Jesus came to this earth. Just want to note two quick things by way of introduction to Mark. And we'll learn more about the Gospel as we go along. But just for today, first, it, first thing is that it's widely believed that Mark wrote down what the Apostle Peter had told him. Mark was not a disciple, but he was a close friend of Peter, who was the disciple that was probably closest to Jesus. And so I believe that sometime soon after Peter had died in Rome, Mark started to write down everything that Peter had told him about the life of Jesus. The other quick note I want to make is that most Bible scholars now, the majority of them believe that Mark was the first gospel to be written, and in fact that both Matthew and Luke would probably, probably have had Mark as a, as a source for their writing and then expanded on it. They might have had a, a copy of Mark right in front of them as they wrote their gospel accounts. And so Mark is the shortest of the, gospel of, of, uh, the, shortest of the four gospels, but it's also the quickest moving. And we'll see that as we go on. And so for today, we just want to dive into the first 15 verses of chapter 1. The first verse there kind of sets the tone, not only for the Gospel of Mark, but for the whole New Testament. It says they're the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When I read that passage and kind of meditated on it again this week a little bit, it kind of reminds you, when you listen to it, of the first verse of the Bible, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I think Mark didn't write that by accident. First, God reveals himself in creation, 
but now he reveals himself in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is a new beginning. With Jesus, there's a new start. It's, it's the fulfillment of what God has been leading up to for the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament always points to the Messiah. It points to, to the one who is to come. It cries out for, for God to come and save this world. And now, that time is here. That time is fulfilled. Look down at verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The world, by this time, needed good news. And the good news, the, the gospel, that's what gospel means, has now arrived. And it's arrived in the form of a person. But this person was also the Son of God. This gospel had been announced through the whole Old Testament. This gospel had been predicted. But now, it's finally here. It's here. God is here. And he has appeared as a savior. Jesus is the gospel of God. As verse 14 puts it. Friends, we dare not rush past this. This is, this is good news for you. You needed Jesus to come. I needed Jesus to come. Jesus is a new beginning. In the words of Athanasius back in the 4th century, he says, Now he entered the world in a new way, stooping to our level in his love and his self-revealing to us. He condescended down and became one of us. He is a new beginning and a new life for you. You think of those words from John, those famous words that we all know, born again. Don't let those words get too familiar. It's through this beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can be born again. So who is this Jesus Christ? Well, the end of verse 1 tells us there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what Mark sets out to show us in this gospel. That Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. This is how he starts in the first verse. And then if you go right to the end at the cross, this is how Mark ends. If you quickly uh, flip over to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Mark has 16 chapters. The part of chapter 16 is a little bit disputed whether it should really be part of the Bible. And we'll talk about that once we get there. But at the end of uh, chapter 15 in verse 30, verse 37 we find Jesus on the cross. It says there, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And then look down at verse 39. Here we have a Roman centurion. And look, look what he says there. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Those two those, those three words, they bracket the beginning of Mark and then the end of Jesus' life. Verse, chapter 1, verse 1, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so Mark makes that claim at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' life on earth, the centurion there affirms it. A Roman centurion, not even a son of Israel. But in between those two things, that claim to be God, that caused all sorts of trouble for Jesus and eventually led to his murder. But in this first chapter, this Jesus, this gospel is introduced to us all. 
He had li- already lived 30 years here, Luke 3 tells us. And except for one incident when he was 12, which we read about at the end of Luke 12, we know nothing about those first 30 years. From other places, we know a few things. Here's what we know. We know he had half-brothers and sisters, people who were sons of Mary and Joseph. We know he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. We also knew that he was without sin. Yet for all that, Mark calls this arrival of Jesus, he calls that the beginning of the gospel. And so what do we learn about this gospel here in the gospel of Mark, especially here in chapter 1? Well, there's a lot in these first few few verses, but I quickly want to go through what they tell us about Jesus. The first thing we learn is that God would send someone ahead of Jesus there in verses 2 to 8. Let's just look at verses 2 to 4 together again. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there's an Old Testament prophecy And John there is shown as the one who would fulfill that. So right from the beginning, we find out that this was part of God's plan all along. Jesus was not plan B. It was not something he decided to do to send Jesus in response to anything, in response to to what Adam and Eve did. He was God's plan from the beginning. Mark links this appearing of John to prepare the way to, to some verses in the Old Testament. Actually, when you think about it, John was the last of those messengers. The whole Old Testament was preparing the way of the Lord. It was all pointing to the one who would come. It was all pointing to the mightier one. John was just the last one of these pointers. He was the the last messenger ahead of Christ. And he would meet Christ. And this messenger's job was to prepare the way, to make ready the way of the Lord, to to make his paths straight. Notice that three times in there, it's talking about ways and and paths. Well, how was John preparing the way? Well, for one thing, his message gave a clue to what Jesus would teach. In verse 4, John appears preaching a baptism of repentance, it says there. And then in verse 14, Jesus also came preaching. And his message in verse 15 was the same as well, repent. Both their messages and how they gave their messages was, was the same. And so John was preparing the way by, by teaching of repentance. But for another thing, John was preparing the way that would ultimately lead Jesus to the cross. In verse 14 it says, after John was arrested, Jesus came. Just like the way for John would not be easy, he got arrested. So Jesus, especially in the second half of Mark, starts to make his way to the cross. This idea of the way or the journey keeps on coming up. And and Jesus' journey is set towards Jerusalem, towards his crucifixion. He knows he has to make this journey. He knows he has to make his way to the cross to to finish off his mission as the incarnate Son of God. That's ultimately why he came. And John, even in his arrest is preparing the way for what Jesus would face as well. 
Well, after that, in verses 5 and 6, we find out about John's ministry. We find out what he looks like. And then in verses 7 7 and 8, we learn what he preached about. John knows that his mission is to point to Jesus. That's what he was appointed to do. That's why he had this miraculous birth as well. We often think about Jesus' miraculous birth, but John's was miraculous as well. Born to a mother who was old and who was supposedly barren. But Jesus is, John knew his mission very clearly. He was preaching and saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His preaching ministry, his entire preaching ministry, was not to point to himself. His aim was pointing at the one who would come after him. Even when John does talk about himself, he sees himself as unworthy, as as being in a role of subordination. Untying sandals is, is what Gentile slaves did. No one else would stoop to do that. And John says he's not even worthy to do that much for Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus the one whose sandal straps John felt unworthy to untie, did exactly that for his people. He stooped down for unworthy people. The one who would be king stooped down. First in coming to this earth, Paul says that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then ultimately, Jesus himself says in Mark 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So even though he was a king, even though he was God himself, Jesus, in his birth, in his life, in his death, stooped down to save many. And so John was a forerunner of of the humility of Jesus and the subordination that Jesus willingly put himself through. Well, secondly, there is the confirmation of the gospel there in verses 9 to 11. Remember here, as I said at the beginning, the gospel is a person. The gospel appeared when Jesus appeared. And here in these verses, Jesus is confirmed by his heavenly Father in in an amazing scene. This is where we have this baptism of Jesus by John. But in Mark The details here are really quick. Bang, bang, bang. Jesus came and he was baptized. You don't have a a lot of the expansion that that the other Gospels give of this account. And I love that all this was happening in the Jordan. I think Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making a very purposeful link here with the entrance into the Promised Land. Remember when Israel finally came into the land there in Joshua? They did it by coming from where? From the east, and then they went across the Jordan River. Their exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land ended as they crossed the Jordan. They had arrived. They were in the wilderness no more. They had come to where God had brought them, was bringing them into, into the Promised Land. And now, here again, these many years later, we find ourselves back at the Jordan River. And we have this This new exodus, if you want to put it that way, ending again in the Jordan. Only this exodus is a spiritual one. We were separated by God because of our sin. We were 
slaves, just like those Hebrew slaves were. Only we were slaves to sin. We, in some way, were in Egypt, away from the land of promise. But now, through Jesus, we, were able, we are able to get to the promised land of salvation. And so the gospel appears in the Jordan. And Jesus' saving work, the beginning of his work of salvation while he's on this earth, starts with his baptism there in the Jordan. Well, that's exactly how we start once we're saved. We don't get saved through baptism, but God has given baptism as a sign that our salvation life has begun. One of the reasons why we encourage anyone who's become a Christian to be baptized, that's why. It's our initiation into, if you want to put it this way, into a gospel-centered life. And for Jesus, his baptism served to initiate his ministry, to confirm his ministry, to identify with us. And that confirmation comes in this amazing event where the heavens come apart, literally. The Spirit descends on him, and then the voice is heard, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Just read that and you think, wow. You just know something's special about to happen here. This is no ordinary, everyday experience. God's amazing plan of redemption is about to be revealed right here on this earth through his son. Christmas is over and the gospel is about to do its thing. The gospel is about to do his thing. The Son of God and the Son of Man has arrived on this earth to redeem mankind, empowered by the Spirit of God. The whole Trinity is part of this this drama here. It's confirmed by the Father in those amazing words. This gospel, you know after this, cannot be thwarted. But this gospel will be opposed. And so in verses 12 to 13, we see the conflict of the gospel. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, verse 12 says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So almost got to read that together with verse 11 to, to, to see how amazing this is. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by, by Satan. It just moves super quick. That, and that's something we're going to see a, a lot in Mark. He loves the word immediately. Saw that already in verse 10. It just moves. And it's the same thing here. The other Gospels all include this interaction between Jesus and Satan. And here we don't even read that Jesus withstood Satan's temptations. It just says the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan. There's wild animals there with him. And the angels were there ministering to him. And so we have to ask, what did Mark want us to know about this? Well, it seems like Mark's goal was just to show that even though the Holy Spirit had descended on him, and probably because the Holy Spirit descended on him, he was going to face opposition. The gospel, by its very nature, will always invite conflict. Notice that it's the Spirit who drove him out there to be tempted by Satan. God initiated this. 
Mark puts this out here to show that the gospel will go head-to-head with evil. It will go head-to-head with Satan. And it would ultimately triumph. Jesus would do what man failed to do in another encounter with a serpent, Satan. When the first Adam and Eve failed in their encounter with a serpent, where they failed, the second Adam would triumph. This is the purpose for which Jesus came. And he's now equipped by the Spirit as the Spirit descended on him to face that opposition. That's the link. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, we need to be prepared for the fact that the gospel will be opposed. Just like Jesus there in the presence of the wild animals, we too will have dangers lurking all around. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians tells us, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. In another place it says that the gospel is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The Bible is clear on that. Even on this side of the cross, we can be certain that the gospel will never be popular. As those who obey and live the gospel, we can be sure that in this world, we will have tribulation. But, We can also take comfort, just like Jesus. We too have been equipped with the Spirit of God to be able to oppose any attack and to withstand any adversary to the gospel. God did not abandon Jesus there in the wilderness, and he's not abandoned you. He has given you his Spirit. He has given you his Word. And when you take up that armor, you will be able to stand in the strength of the Lord against all the schemes of the devil. Well, the last thing we see there is the confrontation of the gospel in verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And listen to these next things. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's only after this forerunner is arrested that Jesus starts his public ministry. And what's the first thing he does? It says he preaches the gospel of God. You know, there's a great pattern there for the church. John's was a ministry, first and foremost, of preaching. And Jesus' ministry was a ministry, first and foremost, of preaching. And the message that Jesus preached was the gospel of God. And what was the message of the gospel of God? It was that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, the gospel is here. Therefore, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. This, my friends, is is a summary of the gospel. And gospel preaching is this. Repent and believe. That's the sum of what we do. Turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ. Believing and trusting in his life and his death and resurrection. And so Jesus is setting a pattern here for gospel preaching. A true church will always follow that pattern. If you're looking for a church, if you move somewhere else and you have to look for a church, look for that pattern. That is the true church. That is true 
gospel preaching. It will give a priority to preaching, preaching that exalts God, preaching that focuses on the life and work of Jesus Christ, preaching that is gospel-centered, preaching that proclaims repentance and faith. And our mandate as a church is to follow that very simple yet profoundly life-changing pattern. But much more than a pattern for preaching here, this little two-verse summary of Jesus' ministry begs a question for all of us here in this room today. It cries out for the necessity of a response to the gospel. It demands a response to this Jesus. You'll see this over and over again as we, as we go through the gospel of Mark. Jesus always confronts people and gives them a choice. You can't just take the, the, Jesus is not just like that nativity scene that's probably still sitting out. You can't just take him and then pack him away in a box and bring him out the next year. He always demands a response. And the response he demands is never a wishy-washy response. People either follow him or they hate him. They either submit to him as Lord or they rebel against his claim to being the Son of God. But Jesus, by his very nature, by his words, by his audacious claim to authority, always demands a response. And so on this day after Christmas, I want want you, I want us to turn the corner on thinking about his arrival in a manger, because we need to be think, think about that and all of that, that that means, and that's what we've been talking about for the last month. I want you to turn the corner from that to thinking about the arrival of his ministry. As Christians, we all love the beauty of Bethlehem. We love the, the ordinariness of it all. And we love the supernatural part of it all. We love the humility of it all. And we love the pageantry of it all. And in church... Us pastors and and music leaders and Sunday school teachers are always trying to point us to the meaning of Christmas, as if we need reminding, and we do. In our world, we desperately try to remind ourselves that Jesus is the reason for the season. But as we now move forward toward Easter, and even here as we walk through the Gospel of Mark together, I want you to make an effort to ask yourself why Jesus is the reason for the season. What is it about this baby Jesus that makes him so important? Why did he need to come? Why did he need to become human? What exactly is it that Jesus has done? And then personalize the question. What did Jesus do for me? Those are all important questions. And that last one will start to get to what you really need to know about Jesus. But don't stop with that question. The answers to all those questions, you can almost summarize them in a, in a number of facts about Jesus. And so the last question you should ask is not, what has Jesus done for me? It also begs another question, and that is, what will you do with Jesus? If you're here today and you've not thought about your answer to those questions, and then that final question, you may not be a Christian. Jesus came to this world and he demands that you respond to him. And the only way to become a Christian is by a positive response to that summary statement there in verse 15. Repent and believe the gospel. You can 
obey that command or you can reject that command. But you must do one or the other. But realize that eternity lies in the balance for you. As people who can't obey God's commands, and none of us can perfectly, we desperately need Jesus. We need his death. Because as a perfect man, he would take for himself the punishment and the suffering that you deserve. You need his perfect life because he would go on to obey all of God's commands. You need his death because as a perfect man, he would take upon himself the punishment that your sins deserve. And and you need his resurrection because it shows that God then was satisfied with what Jesus did for you. But the requirement, the confrontation of the gospel is that you repent and believe this gospel. So yes, Christmas is over. But every ending is a new beginning. I trust this might be a new beginning for you. Either in the way that you think about, in the way you honor Jesus, or for some of you, I pray that you might realize that you can be born again by repenting for the forgiveness of sins and by believing, by, by trusting, by relying on this Jesus who is himself the good news, the gospel of God. Let's pray.